morning, ladies. We're going to get started. We've had fun at our table doing some icebreakers. It's so nice to look out and see new faces that have joined. And uh, so just welcome. Glad you're here. Uh, we want to welcome the people listening on the podcast. This morning, we're doing an overview of the book of Philippians. This is our chosen book of study for this spring. And I hope you all have this book by uh, Lydia Braunbach that says, Philippians, Living for Christ. If you don't have this workbook yet, you can see Chantel, Alyssa, or Eva. So I'm really excited about this book. I've been reading it and reading it and reading it, and I know that I won't cover everything. And so when I was looking at my notes and then I was rereading it, I thought, oh, I didn't, I didn't do that. I didn't include this. And I just want to encourage you women in this book because it's a great book. There's a lot of answers in here. There's a lot of encouragement in here. There's a lot of love in here. And I wanna, want us to be blessed by all of that. So in my overview, if you think I have missed something, the ladies that are teaching in the weeks to come will cover it. So it's just my overview. So before we begin, let's just have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for this book of Philippians that is so rich in love and encouragement. I pray that your gospel will produce joy and worship within us, that a response to the gospel would be to pursue more and more Christ's example of humility. I pray that as we pursue humility, that we would experience the pure joy of working along each other, alongside each other in Christ for the gospel and that we would have the joy of living and working in unity. Amen. So, the book of Philippians was written by Paul. And as we begin, we should really go back to the book of Acts in chapter 16, and that's where we're going to learn when and how Paul started the church there. Paul was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And he embarks on missionary journeys to spread the gospel message. And Acts 16 tells us that in the midst of Paul's secondary, second missionary journey to Asia, the Holy Spirit directed him instead to Macedonia. So, obedient to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, Paul and Silas go to Philippi. Philippi is a major city in Macedonia. It is strategically located along a trade route that connects Rome with its eastern colonies. It's rich in agriculture. It has gold mines surrounding it. So we get this awesome picture of the wealth that is there and the Roman inhabitants that live there. And it, it's quite, it would have been quite a city to land in for Paul. Okay, so Acts 16 continues on, and we read about this beautiful conversion story and baptism of Lydia. Acts 16.14 tells us that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So there's Paul, directed by the Holy Spirit, to go to Philippi, and there he encounters a woman who God had gone before and prepared her heart so what a beautiful story of God's sovereign will and plan um, being unfolded. 
So Lydia's whole household also was converted, also was baptized. And then not long after that, Paul's walking around, he's sharing the gospel, he's walking through town, and he encounters a young slave girl whom he cleanses of a spirit of divination. So she is now rendered of no lucrative monetary benefit to her owners, and the owners are enraged. So they cause a big stink, and eventually Paul and Silas are seized, they're attacked, they're beaten with rods and bound in chains to the innermost part of the prison. Then you can read in Acts 16 as it moves along this beautiful conversion story of uh, the jailer, again, by God's uh, sovereign will in a miraculous earthquake, sorry, in a miraculous story of an earthquake where the integrity of Paul and Silas really shine through. So not long after his conversion, his whole household is converted and baptized So in Acts 16, we get this picture of a very short period of time by faithful gospel ministry in difficult circumstances, Paul establishing the first church on European soil. With love for these believers, Paul wrote this letter to the Philippian church 10 years after he left the city. He wrote while imprisoned in Rome facing an uncertain future. And while he wrote a lot of letters in the New Testament, some like Galatians, where there is scathing rebukes, the letter to the Philippians is loving and encouraging throughout. In chapter 1, in verse 7, he says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. He yearns for them with the affection of Jesus Christ. And then later at the end of the book in 4.1, he says, My brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. In this love letter, we see two reasons for Paul's writing. He writes to thank the Philippian church for sharing in his troubles, expressing gratitude for their generous gift of provision for him and his ministry. So partnered with Paul and concerned for him, they send a Paproditus with these gifts. But the gratitude expressed was more than this because Paul was ministered to and sacrificially served by a Paproditus to the extent that a Paproditus nearly died for the work of Christ. And so Paul wanted the Philippian church to be relieved by good news of a restoration to health And so Paul sends him back to Philippi with this letter. He also writes this letter to encourage the church because they're facing some adversity from within, sorry, from without, and some disunity from within. So we read in 1 verse 28 that there's opponents. Well, yes, there's opponents because they oppose Jesus Christ and they're going to oppose the believers. But they also know, Paul tells them later, that they will suffer for Jesus' sake. Later in 3 verse 2, he warns them to look out for dogs, evildoers, and those who mutilate the flesh. And 3.18 reminds them afresh of those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So this is the adversity from without. 
But there are a few verses here that reveal disunity from within. Chapter 2, 14 urges them to do all things without grumbling or disputing. And then in 4.1, a passionate entreat to Iodica and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So for the reason that Paul writes this letter, he grabs the attention of the reader by giving them the very solutions needed for their exact needs. As we read and study in Philippians, Paul gives hope, encouragement, truth, and that all leads them to find godly solutions. And this rings true for us today. We are familiar with many verses in Philippians. We use them often to encourage each other. We use them for the basis of prayers, and we did that in prayer week this year. I trust that we can feel the love of God for us throughout this book, and I trust that we can follow the encouragement to have mutual love and concern for one another, that we would be gracious with one another, knowing that God is working in all of us um, to will and to continue to work. Sorry that God is working in all of us and will continue to work in all of us. I pray we will seek to follow in Christ's example of true humility. And I pray that we will come to understand unity, church unity, gospel, Christ-centered unity that can't be found in the world. And I pray we will rejoice always. As I said earlier, there's just so much in this short letter And it is exciting that we will be studying it in more depth this spring. In our overview this morning of the book of Philippians, we're going to look at three major themes. Humility, unity, and joy. So when we look at the theme of unity, let's start by reading Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open it to that. And these verses are the clearest, most beautiful portrait of Christ's humility. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ humbled himself by dying on the cross so we could be forgiven our sins, redeemed back to our Heavenly Father. That gives us cause for all joy and adoration. He is the example of humility that we need to look to. He gave up heaven to come down in human form. He died for the world so that we might be saved and have eternal life. He is others-centered He willingly was poured out for others. We are not like him. We are not humble by nature, but we are called to imitate him. 
Paul knows how critical a humble heart is in a believer, both to have joy and unity in the family of believers. So what does Paul say humility looks like in a believer? Well, right above where we just read in chapter 2, verse 3 starts. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We are called to have the mind of Christ. We are called to be poured out for others. And chapter 3 just keeps it going. It just continues to count everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. So he gives us this encouragement, and then he, he fleshes it out with these examples of humble believers. And he urges us in chapter 3, verse 17, to imitate both him and the examples that he gives of those people who are walking according to the example you have given us. So his first example is Timothy. And we see right from chapter 1, verse 1, Timothy is with Paul. Remember, Paul is in Rome in the prison, but Timothy is there. And what's Timothy doing? Serving, helping Paul in a humble position that couldn't have been easy. They call themselves servants of Jesus Christ. That's a beautiful, humble posture, knowing where you stand, where your, your posture is before the Lord. And they're just doing God's will. They are doing gospel ministry. And they have hearts for the Philippian believers in mind and desire to serve them. And we see it again in Paul's description of Timothy. We're going to go to chapter 2, verses 19 to 24. And he tells the believers that Timothy is genuinely concerned for their welfare, not seeking his own interest. Can you hear the verse in chapter 2 of verses 3 and 4 echoing in your mind when I say this? This brings us right back to those verses where Paul tells them that humility is exactly what Timothy is displaying. Well, then he gives the example of Epaphroditus, whom he said, minister to my need. Epaphroditus, in humility, counted Paul more significant than himself. And he literally poured himself out almost to death in serving Paul, in doing gospel ministry with Paul. He then showed how he esteemed the church back in Philippi because he was distressed knowing that they were concerned about him. So he wants to alleviate their anxiety, but meanwhile, he is distressed. So it just shows this other people, other centered focus that he has in humility. Well, Paul's next example is himself. Paul tells us in chapter 3, and he tells the Philippians in chapter 3, that he counts everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Well, he counts all things lost like his rich family heritage, his vocation, his high standing in society. All that is rubbish in order that he may gain Christ. Paul also is willing to pour himself out for the gospel ministry. This is the man that everywhere he goes is run out of town. He's beaten, stoned. He, he, he is beaten with rods. He's imprisoned. He is suffering for believers, the very people that he loves. He is willing to endure every kind of situation. 
And he does this because he is humble enough to realize that he is nothing in and of himself without Christ. All that he is and all that he does is only by God's grace and strength. So Christ humbled himself to save us. It was part of God's redemptive plan from the beginning of time. And knowing the bigger picture of this redemptive plan, Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus followed Christ's example of humility. They followed in Christ's willingness to be obedient and do the will of his Father and to proclaim the gospel message to all nations. And we are called to follow their example in willing obedience to share the gospel message with those around us. So this begs the question, what does a lack of humility look like? Well, let's just go back to chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, and look at the opposite. Let's reverse it. Well, it's pretty easy to be selfish and to do things with a selfish ambition. It is easy to look out for and protect our own interests, to puff ourselves up, to think we know best, to think our way is the right way. This is our sinful nature. And that is why Paul exhorts the believers to have the mind, this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul exalts the mind that Jesus had in order to stimulate humility in the believers. And it is because of that fact that they were in Christ Jesus that they could live out this exhortation. But having the mind of Christ dwelling in us not only stimulates humility, but unity as well. And this is our next theme. These are some descriptive words that we find all the way through Philippians that Paul uses to describe unity. Partnership in the gospel. Partakers with me in Christ, in, the, in, the, in grace. Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Fellow worker and fellow soldier. And the last one, labored side by side with me in the gospel. These words imply a oneness, a unity. And we know when we accept Jesus as our savior, we become one with him. We are ushered into the family of God and become one with each other. We embrace partnership with one another to do gospel work. We labor together side by side. Look at the very examples given to us in this book. Paul and Timothy demonstrated unity by their partnership in gospel ministry. Despite being in prison in Rome, Paul is still doing gospel ministry with Timothy. And Paul praises Timothy for serving him in the gospel and trusts him to go and serve the church in Philippi with the same unity in the gospel. There is also unity between Paul and the Philippian church. Paul thanks God for them because of their partnership in the gospel. He rejoices at the very thought of hearing that they are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In chapter 2, he wants the Philippians to complete his joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full, of, in full accord and of one mind. 
Paul calls Epaphroditus a brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, all implying a unity of gospel ministry together. There is even a beautiful reference to a pastime of unity in the Philippian church in chapter 4 when it uh, references just after Iodia and Syndica, and he says, let me find it, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. So he alludes to that was happening in this church and to a certain extent is still happening. But then, of course, we know that there is this little disunity happening. But I love... Now, he just, he, the reality here, and he alludes to it here because he's going to entreat these two women, but the reality of the Philippian church is there is disunity within. And Paul calls out these two people right there in chapter 4, verse 1, Iodica and Syntyche, and he entreats them to agree in the Lord They need help to set aside what they disagree about in order to be restored to working side by side in the gospel. And I love how Paul leaves this to the very end in chapter 4. He has bathed this letter in love. He has bathed it in encouragement. He has put the nugget of Christ's humility right in the center of the book. And then near the end he says, oh, and by the way, which it wouldn't be by the way, it would be it's a critical thing that he needs to say. He says, you two, and he names them by name. You need to agree in the Lord. But the grace of that is he's laid it all out in the chapters before on how to deal with that, how to find resolution and how to get back to that unity. And the key is humility. They need to humble themselves, figure this out, probably confess some conceit or some selfish ambition and get right with the Lord and get right with each other. But there's more. It is hard work on the part of the believer for unity, but unity originates with God's spirit. And we see this in chapter two, verse one, where he's asking these rhetorical questions. Is there any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit? Well, of course there's participation in the Spirit. The Spirit is right in there doing the work with us and for us. And then in chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So these verses show us that God both holds us responsible for the unity he commands while acknowledging that unity can only be achieved by the work of the Spirit. And Paul needed to address this disunity in the beloved church, and it is needed for us today as well. And it's a caution about disunity's negative impact. The third and last theme that we're going to look today is joy. And I think in the book and in the studies to come, This is the big one. This is the emphasis. And Paul just exudes joy. Joy and rejoice is is just all through this book. I think it's in there 15 times. 
He rejoices in prayer for the Philippian church's partnership in the gospel with them. He rejoices in the fact that his circumstances of being in prison hasn't hindered the gospel message from being boldly proclaimed. He rejoices in being poured out for their progress and joy in the faith. He rejoices in the good report of the church from Epaphroditus, and he exhorts the Philippian church to rejoice. So what does joy look like? What brings you joy? Well, Paul reveals in this letter the source of joy. And we're going to find out that it is rooted in the promises of God, the work of God, the encouragement of Christ, the fellowship of the Spirit, and seeing his work both in our own personal lives and his work in the lives of others as well. It is rooted in the blessings of growing together as as his co-workers, co-laborers, brothers and sisters, in partnership, striving side by side in an other-centered life. Joy comes from seeing others mature and grow in their faith. Doesn't it make you happy on baptism day when you see the youth of the church go up there and they're being baptized? There's joy in encouraging others by praying for them. Look at the encouragement and the joy that we shared around the tables today in prayer knowing that we can bring everything before God who hears and answers. Joy comes from giving generously. There is joy in working together side by side in a unified spirit. Paul exhorts the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. He says this and he repeats it because he knew the believers needed to hear it. And there are many things that can rob us of joy. Even when he says this in chapter 4, verse 4, right after that, very quickly in verse 6, it says, don't be anxious about anything. So we know that anxiety can steal our joy. But there's always a health issue or loss of a loved one or troubles at work, financial strains or parenting through a difficult situation and so much more. Paul doesn't say rejoice in your circumstances and and when your circumstances are good. No, he says rejoice in the Lord always. Joy comes from our relationship with Jesus, not our circumstances. Real joy comes when we realize what we deserve and what we deserved was judgment for our sins and what we received instead was salvation. God is rich in grace and mercy. So this book, with these beautiful themes, it's really hard to separate the themes. As I said, right in the middle is this beautiful portrait of Christ's humility. So we are to follow that example of humility. We are to follow the example because humility is what brings unity. You can't have unity apart from humility. You can't look at Christ and what he did for us on the cross and not want to just fall down in absolute joy that you belong to him, that you're a daughter of a king, that you have this beautiful new family, that you have an eternity with God. And and that should just, it should be all joy and all worship that just exudes out of us. And if we are so incredibly grateful for what he has done for us, should that not humble us? Should that not want us to proclaim the gospel? And to proclaim the gospel, we got to do it in unity with people around us, the family of God that God has placed us in. 
So these themes I find are all interwoven and so critical for one another that it's going to be fun to study this book. It's going to be fun to have discussions around the table because there is so much stuff in here. So I want you to remember as we finish up that unity can only be fully experienced with Christ-like humility. Side-by-side partnership happens when we are esteeming the other person uh, better than ourselves and when we are growing up together in the same mind and that results in joy. (laughs) However, we, like the Philippian believers, will never arrive at true humility or true unity and just this pure joy always. We can strive for this, but we find hope in God's promises to us. And we are encouraged by God's promises to us because his promises are true and he fulfills them. So if we go back to chapter 1, verse 6, he says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So we're a work in progress. I can come on any given day and lack humility. I can come and maybe say something in self-righteousness to a, a sister in Christ. And I could bring grumbling that steals joy. But I can go home and confess that. I can realize that. I can confess that. And I can realize I am a work in progress. That he who began this work in me is going to edge me along in my sanctification. And tomorrow, by God's grace, I won't make that mistake. I won't, I won't sin in that way. Because he is working in me. That's a beautiful promise. That gives us hope and encouragement. There's, a, there's more. Um, in chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we aren't alone in this. He's with us. He's given us the Holy Spirit to indwell us. So the Spirit helps us to grow in humility and unity and joy. Chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 say, But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If I can't... um, have humility on my own, I can ask the Lord for humility. I can ask the Lord for the strength to grow in, in humility and unity and, and joy. And he hears and he answers. And then he promises me and you and the, and the believers in Philippians that his peace will guard our minds. That's amazing. So then we can go on to four, uh, chapter 4, verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Well, that doesn't mean that I'm going to go out and be able to lift 50 pounds because God strengthens me. That means that I can actually share the gospel with somebody and, and, and God is going to strengthen me to do that. He's going to equip me to do that. I can work in partnership with you ladies in a ministry and I can do it because God is strengthening me to do that. And no matter what my circumstances are, I can do this. We can do this. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Again, we are not alone. And then in chapter 4, verse 19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. 
He supplies everything we need. So that just is a beautiful encouragement to us. And as we wrap up our overview of Philippians, let's be encouraged to press forward, to think about what is true and pure, to think about Christ's humility, that nugget in the middle of this book. Let's be thinking about and encouraged to be growing in our knowledge and love of him and to be bringing everything to God in prayer, to rejoice no matter what our circumstances are, and to rejoice that the power of the Holy Spirit is working in us. Let's look forward to the coming weeks of study where the teachers will expand on all of these rich themes and lead us into a deeper understanding of joy. And I'm going to leave you with this summary statement. Following Jesus' example of humility, strive side by side for the gospel with joy.